of you who were just visiting, I think most of you have been here before that were up here in the front. And happy Mother's Day. Uh, today we're going to preach on church discipline. <laughs> How many of you have ever heard a message on church discipline? Mm, about a quarter of you. Uh, I told Jim Acock, what a, it's probably not the best day to teach on church discipline. And he said, discipline? I said, well, exactly. That's the point. It's a great day to preach on church discipline. Especially in, in light of what I was saying a little bit earlier about the way that our society regards raising children. Um, I subscribe to Time magazine. I, it, it, I need to get my blood pressure up every week, and so I subscribe to Time magazine, and it does that, I'm telling you. Uh, this week... You, some of you already know the, 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 the cover is terribly offensive. Um, the article, it appears to me, is going to be even more offensive than the, uh, art, uh, than the cover. I just did a little flipping through, and if, if I'm not mistaken, the point is that fathers need to get out of the way and let these super moms raise their children. Now, I could be totally wrong, and I, pro- I probably shouldn't say it. I can almost guarantee I'm going to disagree at some level with that article. But if that's the, if that's the tenor of the horrible article, it's horrible advice. Horrible advice. And the idea that we just let children do anything they want to, and we set a good example, and they'll be all right, is utterly unbiblical. It's, it, it's terribly unbiblical, and it courts disaster. The same is true of a church. Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment, there's a painting hanging in your home. And your mom passed it down to you. Your parents passed it down. But it was really special to your mom. If I were an art connoisseur, this would be a much better illustration. But since it was special to your mom, let's have a little Mother's Day connection here. And that'll that'll be good anyway. And you like this painting, but it's nothing all that... I mean, you know, it's nice, but you don't think about it. And then one day, your friend walks in, and he says, Where did you get that painting? He said, My mom gave it to me. She picked it up at a yard sale. I think she said it was a really nice home. It was having a yard sale, but she picked it up. And he says, That looks like a Henry Matisse. And you say, I always thought it was a Matisse. No, that's not what you say at all. You, you say, a what? You thought it was a what? And he says, Henry Matisse, a, a famous French painter around the, the first part of the century. Wow, it, it looks amazingly like it. And, and here's the really interesting thing. That particular painting that it looks like is missing out of all its collection. That's, that's the one painting that's missing. Probably just a coincidence, but, you know, I'm just, I'm just saying all of a sudden you begin to look at your painting through different eyes. I mean, first of all, you, you, you notice subtleties in the color and the texture that you didn't know before. notice before. Even though you're not much of an art connoisseur, you, you say, well, yeah, this really is a, a nice painting. Look at the way this person's looking over here. and it's, it's pretty interesting. Then, you know, you do what any good red-blooded American would do. You put it in your car and take it to an art appraiser. You know, and, he's, and, and, and after a few weeks, he calls back and says, you're not going to believe this. 
This actually is that missing painting. Typically, this man's paintings would be worth ten, fifteen thousand dollars, but this is somewhere north of one hundred thousand because it's been missing for all this time, and you have it. You very carefully put the painting back in the back seat, and you drive the speed limit the whole way. You know your your defensive drive. You're looking out. You just you don't want anything to happen, and and and. And, and until you decide what you're going to do, you carefully hang the painting, much more carefully than you did the first time. You're seeing it through different eyes. Now, this illustration was about art, but I know that, that you have had something in your life where you either begin to look at something or someone in a different way just because somebody else's eyes were on that and they said, you know, you really ought to think about in this way, this in this way. Perhaps you thought your brother or sister were just an ordinary person until one day you heard a professor, a college professor, talking about your brother and how much he admires him, how bright he is. And all of a sudden you start, well, oh. You know, or your children or your parents. You, you, you look at them differently. You say, this is my mom, you know. And then you hear somebody talking about your mom. It's like, wow. Maybe I need to give her a fresh look, you know. I need to look at her through different eyes. Maybe you've read a book and, you know, it's all right, but wasn't that great. But then you heard other people talking and you think, well, maybe I need to give this another chance. And, and voila, it's, it's awesome. It's great. You see things that you missed the first go-round because you had a particular perspective. You didn't think it was all that much. Well, it's my desire this morning that we take a, a second look at the church and hopefully see it in a different way than we've seen it before. And, and we're going to do this from these passages in Matthew 16 that we looked at last week and then Matthew 18 this morning. And it may seem like a strange place to take a different look at the church, but listen, how many families, how many families have been changed completely when they take a different look at discipline about their children? I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, our kids are going to just, they're dominating us. And then somebody says something about discipline, which you have always thought of as being overbearing and, 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 and un 21st century like, and all of a sudden, you start to apply some principles and you recognize how much love goes into the proper kind of discipline. And all of a sudden, family looks a whole lot different. Well, today, we're going to move two chapters from where we were last week in Matthew 16 and to Matthew 18, where Jesus, for the second and third times, he only mentioned the church three times, the only time he uses the word ecclesia in these two passages. Um, <clears throat> other places in the New Testament, he refers to the church in other ways, like he tells Peter in John 21, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Take care, shepherd the flock of God. He's talking about the church, but here, these are the only two places where he refers to it as a called out gathering of people. If you were not here last week, you may want to go online and, and listen, and it'll help clarify some of the things that will be said today. Uh, there's going to be, though, some time for review uh, in the course of today's message. We'll, we'll begin our time reading our text, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. And as is our custom, would you please stand as we 
read the word. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, let him be to you as one who doesn't know Christ. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Great prayer promise, right? No. We'll talk about it. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come to you today uh, as those who seek to hear from you. We desire to hear your word, your heart, and we desire to be obedient. Lord, when we come to a topic like this, we recognize our tendency to obey commands like this in the flesh and consequently (laughs) go way beyond what you intend. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand exactly what you're saying. Um, And that we might obey your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and be seated. Some of the feedback that I got from last week's home group notes where we followed up on Matthew 16 uh, indicated that this was a, it was a difficult place to stop. Uh, I know for some of you, these two texts are like drinking from a fire hydrant. And so, especially those of you who are coming in today, I, I, I think today everything will fall into place. I hope it makes sense to you. But I want <clears throat> us to... Consider the fullness of what God is saying. I I, I was indicating, though, that some of the home groups said, hey, look, we stopped at a tough place. Well, hopefully this fills in the blanks. Hopefully this answers the questions, ties up the loose ends, that kind of thing. Don't know if you will agree with me entirely or not. There are some places I'm going to say we just don't know what exactly is being said here. But at least give this some thought. And even as we discuss this strange topic for looking at the church through new eyes. Look, most of the time today when people say, look at the church through new eyes, they they tend to move toward we're loving and accepting. I'm saying let's look at the church through new eyes where the church is tightening up even and and seeking to be the holy men and women that God called us to be. That know what Scripture says? Be holy for I am holy. We, We do a great job these days of explaining away 
Scripture all the time. Well, be holy like I am holy. Well, nobody can really be holy. We're holy because Christ lives in us. Yes, but there's more to that command. God expects us to live a life that radiates and reflects Jesus. He expects us to. We'll talk about that in the course of this uh, today. So I hope it's possible that we can begin to look at the church through new or, or, or maybe just renewed eyes. As has already been noted, Matthew 16 and, and 18 are the only two places where Jesus calls his followers the church. The two verses that you see on the screen are there simply to make the point that in Matthew 16, Jesus is talking about the universal church. All of those who have ever trusted Christ, who would trust Christ from that point forward, we have to say when Jesus said those words. And, and in Matthew 18, he's talking about the local church. It has to be the local church to which he is referring. It doesn't work any other way. <clears throat> You'll see what I'm talking about. In, in the rest of the New Testament, occasionally the universal church is referenced. Say like in Ephesians 5, where we were looking earlier today, where Paul said that husbands are to love their wives just like Christ loved the church. In other words, a husband is, is to be willing to die for his wife because Jesus died for the church, and he's talking about the universal church when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Most of the other places in the New Testament, when you see the word church, from the epistles on, really from Acts on, you're talking about the local church. These men that are writing scripture are talking about a local assembly of believers. Uh, like in Revelation, where each of the churches, of seven churches in modern day Turkey are addressed He's talking to specific churches. Actually, he's talking to specific individuals in those specific churches. But for the most part, we're talking about the local church in the New Testament. Occasionally, the New Testament authors are referring to both the universal and local church at the same time. So you run into a brother or sister in China or in Brazil or anywhere, we're all part of the universal church. Or, you know, in, in Johnston County. I think there are a handful of believers over there in Johnston County. Just kidding for those of you who are from Johnston County and would like to beat my face. No, no. I'm just... um, but most of the time when we talk about the church, we're talking about this church, the local church. If this is the church you called home, when you see church in the New Testament, he is essentially saying grace community church. He's speaking to us in that way. Um, <clears throat> our text today addresses the local church. It's not necessarily the kind of church, text that you think is going to make you walk out and say, Oh man, I love the local church. You know, I just love the local church. I love the way the body functions. Um, our examination of this text is going to begin to point us toward other thoughts that we're going to talk about next week with regard to the church. But, but don't be quick to dismiss the role of discipline, the positive role of discipline in the church, nor of the love that is associated with Jesus' command regarding discipline. And if you think, I know I don't have to sell this point, but just consider it. If you think there should be no discipline in the church, just try that at home. Okay, no more rules. 
about anything. Live free or die. Somebody's going to die, you know, in that, in, in that situation. Because they don't exactly go together. We can make them work, but... So before we seek to discern what Jesus was saying to his disciples in our, stack, in our text, let's just think about, once again, the, the, the creation, fall, redemption, restoration story that we have been following the entire way in this Acts 29. That's a circle that will come up on the screen any moment. Um, there, the gospel. This is... The gospel that we're thinking about. And this text is loaded with gospel implications. Now, a lot of people want to look at church discipline and say, legalism. No, it's gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Full, complete restoration. Both in the present and especially in the future. Now, you may recall from last week... That after Adam and Eve fell, every one of their descendants from that moment forward were already estranged from God. So God chose to reveal himself to the world through a people. It was a nation, in fact, Israel. He gave his people very clear laws and boundaries in order for them to know how to live. But what he really wanted was their hearts. That's what God was looking for. When he made this law, he was trying to point them to himself. He wanted them to give him their hearts. And and they were told in the earliest days that Abraham believed God and it was his belief in God and his trust in the Lord's promises that caused God to say, you are righteous, not his keeping of the law. So God is always expecting our Hearts, But the Jews wanted to look good rather than give God their hearts. So he took away their representative status and gave it to the church, which is made up of all nations. Now that's a serious responsibility. I don't have this in the notes, but you go to Romans 9, 10, and 11. God's talking about how he took from the Jews the nation of Israel and gave to the Gentiles, to the church at large, Jews and Gentiles making up the church. But he said, don't get haughty because if you do, don't you know that God is able to take it away from you just as quickly as he took it away from the Jews. So our call, our charge, our responsibility is to represent the Lord well. The old covenant is a covenant of law. The new covenant is a covenant of grace. We have advantages all over the Jewish nation because it's spelled out for us. It wasn't spelled out as well for them. The gospel story wasn't quite as easily discerned for them as it is for us. So we're living under grace. Does that mean that we have no law, no rules, no boundary? No way. It does not mean that. That's what Matthew 18 addresses. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three 
witnesses. Now, Jesus is telling his followers how to treat someone who has sinned, most likely sinned against him. There is, a, there is enough doubt about the text here, the, the original text in the Greek uh, manuscripts, that, that against him was added and that really you could say if your brother sins, go to him and tell him his fault. But more than likely he's talking about a one-on-one uh, kind of offense where someone has offended you. Harold Jernigan has offended me horribly and so I've got to go to Harold and straighten this out. You know, that's kind of the idea. I, if The day that Harold offends me horribly, I'm going to be really shocked. But I'm just trying to give you an idea. W- whether or not uh, it's so that this is referring to a one-on-one kind of a situation, uh, the rest of the New Testament would affirm the discipline of wayward church members and, and this is a good pattern to follow. Uh, you're going to think much more deeply about this in home groups this week. And I know a lot of you are not meeting, so I'm sending, I've sent the home group notes to the home group leaders, and maybe they'll send the leaders' notes on to you so that you can get an idea of where this is supposed to be heading in home groups. Um, let me say this. Let me just pause for a moment and say that all church discipline should be administered only in extreme cases. And there's a stop every, every step of the way. You know, you're doing your absolute best to, to, to keep this out of the entire church's business. And it's, it's for extreme cases. I mean, the overwhelming New Testament emphasis on church members and their relationships with one another is on forbearance and forgiveness and, and overlooking sins and, and forgiving like Jesus forgave us. So this, like I say, is reserved for extreme cases. We're even to, to overcome offenses that, that, that are committed against us by our brothers and, and, and sisters with love. Nonetheless, there is an admonition in this text to deal with sin in an official way. So, let's pause and let me ask, is this shaping up to be the Mother's Day message you had hoped for when you came this morning? Back to the text. You'll, you'll notice a couple of things right from the beginning, beginning. First of all, let's keep the knowledge, the circle of knowledge as small as possible. Now, now what happens when somebody offends you? The temptation is most likely for you to defend yourself. If somebody accuses you of something or they offend you, they hurt you in some way, our temptation is to tell everybody else, that person is wrong. Especially if it's public, we, we want to go public. But even if it's not, the temptation is to pick up the phone and say, hey, you know what so-and-so did to me? Isn't that just wrong? Not wrong for him or her to do that? Um, whether the offense is against you or, or if it's a sin against the Lord... The command of Jesus is to not tell anyone, go to the person. Go to the person and deal with it. And confront, Scripture tells us in Galatians 6.1, as gently as you possibly can, you better consider yourself. Do not go in a haughty way saying, you've sinned and I'm going to deal with this now, right now. We're going to deal with this thing right now. That's not the way to go. Go gently. You who are spiritual, go gently trying to restore this one who is strayed lest you be tempted yourself, lest you fall into sin. Based on the first admonition to keep the sin as private as possible, it's no surprise 
that our second principle here is that the goal of church discipline is restoration. Always. If your brother or sister listens to you, you've gained him or kept him in good standing with Jesus and with the church. If he refuses to listen, then take a few witnesses with you to to lend weight to your efforts of restoring your brother to the church. What happens if he's offended with him? Every effort to help him, look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The scope of these two verses is breathtaking. If your wayward brother refuses to listen to a small group of loving brothers and or sisters, bring him before the church to give account for the actions that bring reproach to the name of Jesus. Now, who's he referring to here? Is he referring to the entire church or just the leadership? There's enough debate amongst biblical scholars. It could go either way. Either way, if a confrontation gets to this point, a very very somber and sober decision has to be made by the church to say, your behavior is not consistent with that of a Christ follower. And since you refuse to repent of your behavior and you live, you tell the world one thing, that you were a follower of Jesus Christ and yet you live in a way that is utterly inconsistent to His ways then we have to declare you as one who cannot any longer fellowship with us. What does that mean? You're not allowed to participate in the covenant activities that bind us to Jesus. Some people think that that means that a person should still come to church uh, but not be allowed to participate in in communion, because you're constantly seeking to restore this person. Others tend to think that it means not allow the person to participate in the covenant community at all. I tend to think that's what he's saying. That, that to say, you're not allowed any longer to participate in our church activities. Either way, we are to continue wooing the offending individual back to Jesus. Now, let me just say this. Grace Community Church has never taken the position of putting someone outside of the fellowship. That was clarified for me this week. There was an incident before I came, but it, it, it resulted in repentance at the moment. I have heard of, of, of several cases where people have been confronted at this level and they have repented. It is difficult. It is painful. But they have repented. I have heard of many, many, many cases where people have not been confronted at this level and they've walked away from marriages, from integrity in their relationships at work and wherever. Essentially, they've walked away from Jesus, but they pretend not to walk away from Jesus. They divorce 
remarry, go down the church, go down the road to another church. Or sometime if the church is just loving and accept and divorce for no biblical reason whatsoever. And sometimes if the church is accepted enough down the road or, or, or where they are, they'll just stay there. And the person who has been sinned against has to leave so that the church can show itself to be so gracious and loving. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 5. When Jesus or Paul said to the church, unbelievers don't even act like that. And you're bragging on your grace. Perhaps it doesn't take Time Magazine to get my blood pressure up. If we were to ever take the stand where we said, this person can no longer fellowship with the church, I am going to guess that some of you would just walk out. I, I hope not. I, I, I should not expect that, but I would guess in our society that if a church ever were to administer discipline, that some people are going to say, I'm sorry, I cannot participate in that. I'm just not a judge in that way. Look, I understand that at some level. I mean, I am as merciful as I can possibly be because I want God to be merciful to me. I mean, the the Beatitudes about humility and mercy and forgiveness and graciousness and all of those things speak to us loudly. So if this decision were ever made, it would not be made lightly and it would have to be done exactly as God says it, with love and with the goal of restoration. But to say that the church has no role in speaking into someone's about behavior that brings reproach on the name of Jesus is to say either that Jesus, one of two things, either Jesus didn't know what he was talking about or he was too harsh. But you can hardly say that Jesus did not mean to command church discipline in this text. Now, if you agree that Jesus commanded this, but think that the church really shouldn't do this in our day, that it has no place in our day. Well, again, I'll use the words that I used earlier. That is to court disaster. Church discipline is about representing God well, just like he wanted the nation of Israel to represent him. It's about restoring a wayward sinner to the fellowship of Christ. And it's about maintaining the purity of the body, recognizing that we are a people who has been set apart to represent Jesus to the world. It it is at its core gospel-centered because it always seeks to restore fallen sinners to fellowship, both with Jesus and with the local church. And if you will recall, Israel was in essence fired from representing, from the job of representing God. And I think we could all point to churches that are still functioning, but have been in essence relieved of the privilege of representing Jesus to the world. Verses 17 and 18 should cause us to look at the church with a fresh perspective. The church has the authority to welcome baptized believers into the fellowship and it has the authority to say to someone, you can no longer be a part of this covenant community. We as a body declare you to be as one who does not know Jesus. 
Now, can you imagine hearing that from one person? It wouldn't be your best day under any circumstances. Under circumstances. It just would not be your best day. Can you imagine hearing that from a whole body? To hear it from the entire church, that, that, that would be devastating, wouldn't it? Unfortunately, in our day, even if someone is deeply hurt, you know, they may say, look, there's no grace in that church, but remember the process. This is... This has been going on for a long time. This, this doesn't happen just like that. This has been going on for a long time. And loving, pleading for a person to repent. It's still nonetheless easy for people to miss the gospel cycle in all of this and say, judgment, 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 I'm out of here. And just go a few miles down the road in order to associate with a more loving, accepting group of people. I'm not pointing to any churches around here. I'm just saying you can do that almost anywhere in the South. When I was in the mountains, we had seven churches within a mile and a half. 14,000 people in the entire county. Must have been 12,000 churches. So, you know, you had your pick. <clears throat> well, to do so, to just move down the road fails to take into account verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Well, it's time to go deep, really. This is the same language that was used last week when Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. And he was told the exact same thing. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. Does that mean <clears throat> that Peter had absolute authority over the church and over all people in the church and that he would become sinless, sinless at some point? No. Ridiculously no. It doesn't mean that. It, scripture is, there are just so many evidences in Scripture that we're not going to take time. You'll look at a little of it in home group. <clears throat> but <clears throat> we, can, we can help understand what was being said if we consider another passage where Jesus talked about keys to the kingdom. Luke eleven fifty two, And in this text, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders for locking people out of the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> doesn't say... <clears throat> The kingdom, but that's what he's talking about, entering the kingdom of heaven. They, they locked him out, they kept themselves out, and they locked the gates to others. And, and what Jesus was saying to Peter was, I'm giving you the keys to open these gates wide. And the keys that I'm giving you are the gospel, and people's, men and women's hearts are going to be open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, in other words, the nation, the leaders of the nation of Israel had missed the whole point about believing in God. But rather they had crafted a law that enabled them to believe about themselves, to believe in themselves. Peter was going to be used by God to change that by sharing the gospel. Then the, those breathtaking words, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That sounds like when Peter made a decision or, or, or when the local church makes a decision, then it's as good as done in heaven. In fact, it is done, but it's not necessarily in the way that you may think. The Greek construction of these verbs is a periphrastic future perfect. Now, I don't mean to insult your intelligence. I know that you know that. 
And I know that you also know that that means this passage could be reread like this. Whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. In other words, we are accomplishing the will of the Lord as we seek Him and as we always, always, always remember to keep Jesus as the head of our church. Now this does seem like an enormous amount of spiritual power in the hands of fallible men, doesn't it? I want to just share a few things about what the keys and the binding and loosing are and are not. Um, won't have much time at all to comment on these points, but you can consider them later if you write them down. In fact, if you go to home group, you will consider them later. First of all, what do these verses not mean? Any church or individual has ultimate spiritual authority over another person. Ultimate, complete, dominant spiritual authority over another person. Uh, thank God we don't have to worry about that on either side of the equation, that someone may exercise ultimate spiritual authority over us or that we are given the responsibility of exercising ultimate spiritual responsibility. Over. That's not what God was saying when He said, Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the heaven. And then He used the same language with the local church that He had used with Peter. It's not what it means. Secondly, whenever a decision is made on earth, God must affirm it in heaven. Really? Why would anybody think that? That that God has to say, well, I don't agree with it, but you know, he said it. Okay, done. It's ridiculous. That's why we, even in our country, we have appeals, you know, to the next court. There is a place where the buck stops. And it really doesn't stop with them. It just keeps on going, but we don't recognize that. Ultimately, God has the authority. And even if a church were to make a bad decision, it doesn't mean God is bound to that decision. Third, to be disciplined by a church means that one loses his or her salvation. Only God can judge. We believe in eternal security. However, we'll come back to that in a moment. Now, what do these verses mean? First of all, belief in the gospel gives one entrance to heaven to the kingdom of God. That's what was happening when, when Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. It's not like Peter was saying, in, out, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." you know. He was saying, here's the gospel. Those who believe will enter the kingdom. And they will not be bound by a law that they cannot keep any longer. Second, the church may not have ultimate spiritual authority, But it has substantial spiritual authority. If we can do what has been said in this text, that's pretty significant authority. And that's the church's authority. That's that's all of us. Third, it is our responsibility slash privilege to do the will of God on earth. And that can only be done in the context of a local church. Now, don't get me wrong. Look, I've said it so many times. I was a camp director for 20 years. I I believe in church, in organizations that exist outside of the church. Some of you came to Christ through a Billy Graham crusade or through Campus Crusade for Christ or or, um, 
campus outreach, what a, a, another ministry, or at camps. We saw a number of people come to Jesus every summer at TVR. So I'm not against those. I, uh, uh, but, but I will tell you that I believed this statement the entire time that I was a camper. I didn't think we had anything over the church. Just felt like that I understood us to be an organization that was connected to local churches and that God used to help build those churches. Got ahead of myself. And, and, and all leaders of campus ministries, no matter how big they are, or campus or, or any parachurch organization, no matter how, how big they are, need to be submissive to a local body of believers. We are all submissive to one another. And then, the, then God has established leaders, and we're to be submissive, and there's so much in Scripture about that that we typically avoid because, well, you know, because it's 21st century. We are to be submissive to one another. What did Jesus say in Matthew 16? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, that was the universal church. Yes, but the binding and loosened language continues in Matthew 18 and connects the universal and local church and it identifies God's plan to reveal himself through the church. So, the question becomes, not will I accept the church, but rather... Will the church accept me? We don't even, that doesn't cross our minds most of the time. We go into a church and we think, you know, these guys sure would be blessed to have me in here. Maybe, just maybe, if everything plays out just right, this is the place for us, honey. They recognize our talents and our gifts. And if they don't recognize that, they recognize we got money. <laughs> and so they're going to accept us. If this sounds arrogant, think about it. In one of these views, one person is making all the judgments about worthiness. In the other scenario, an entire body that is hopefully seeking to follow Jesus and to protect the purity of the church and is making prayerful, careful decisions about who is allowed to claim to be a part of that body. That, there's a difference. That's a different perspective than we typically have in our Protestant, Enlightenment, postmodern, amalgam, American way of thinking. And I'm happy to be all of the above, by the way. But the way we generally think about things makes us look at the church and say, oh yeah, that's a nice painting. My mom picked it up somewhere. It's not like I look at it all the time, you know. But what if the church is something way more than we have considered it to be in the past? What if the local church is God's plan for presenting and revealing Jesus to the world? And this is serious business. What if God takes this seriously? Shouldn't we? Look, I, I know it's very popular in our day, and I know, I know, I know some of you believe this, and I'm, I'm not picking a fight, and I'm not trying to use the bully pulpit. 
Oh, wait a minute, I can't say that these days, can I? Bully, pulpit. Um, I, I'm, not trying to, I, I'm not trying to in any way make anyone feel like, oh man, that's coming at me, it's not. I just want you to think. A lot of people in our day say church membership's unbiblical. That's not true. It's extra biblical. It is not unbiblical. It's unbiblical to say, do the best you can and hopefully everything will work out in the end when you stand before God. That's unbiblical. Uh, the fact that we're meeting in this building is not biblical. It's extra biblical. The fact that we have a church administrator on our staff is extra biblical. Church membership is extra biblical, but it's not a bad thing. And look, we're citizens of a kingdom. And this kingdom is represented by embassies, local outposts all over this world. We do not call this world our home. We are connected with the kingdom. And we can no longer say rightly before God, I don't belong to any group of people that calls... I'm just part of the universal church. we We can no more say that then we can say, I'm not a citizen of any country. Try that one out. It's not going to work. You have to be connected somewhere. People are renouncing their American citizenship at an amazing rate. And they're doing so because of this, money. That's it. It's not ideology. It's like you're going to tax me to death. Or it's going to go under. And there are other places where the, the economies are more stable Seems silly to me. I mean, you know, if we go under, I'm not betting on the rest of the world. I know that sounds arrogant, probably is, but I'm just, the the point is, look, we're connected to countries, right? If we're connected to the kingdom of God and this is God's design, we got to get in. You don't have to be a member on any role. You don't have to, but you've got to connect with a local group of people. You have to! Sorry about that front row. And all those who were sleeping. Well, let's look at this last thought from our text. We should not take the passages that warn us about our relationship with God lightly. And we should recognize that the apostles understood those outside of the church to be outside of Christ. Now, Catholic Church says that and we don't like it because we say salvation is all about your relationship, your individual relationship with God. True, but there's more to it than that. Our sanctification cannot be accomplished on our own. And even though salvation is a very individual thing, the covenant community has a much bigger say, even in our salvation, than we want it to sometimes. I'm so sorry, those of you who were expecting, you know, to get in here and out. We're almost done, but, but this is important. When, when the covenant, it's just like we were reading this morning from Psalm 78. Our community believes this, and we tell our children, this is what you believe, this is who you are. That's the way God works. And He does it in a community. Even the idea of the home church, you know, not opposed to it entirely, but how do you have the structure that is commanded in the New Testament in a home church? 
so many times a home church is kind of like, well, we don't agree with anybody else, so let's just do it in our home and maybe get two or three families that agree with us. It's not submitting. It's just not submitting to the body. And, and, and the apostles understood those to be outside of the church, to be outside of Christ, which is why it's such a sobering thing to think about the church saying to anyone, you cannot be a member of our church or I'm so sorry, we have to consider you as one who no longer belongs in this covenant community. Although hopefully that would be temporary. Now, I'm going to talk in home group about what that means. Um, for the church to basically say, we don't believe you're a Christian any longer. It, it, it doesn't, eternal security never changes but we are not to take the warning passages in Scripture lightly. We're not to explain, always explain them away. Well, we have to take that in context with everything else. God put them there for a reason. There are a lot of them. To tell us to take stock of where we are. Do you really belong to Jesus? Do you really belong to Jesus? And when the church comes to the point to say, we don't believe you do, wow. It's the ultimate authority, isn't it? The ultimate authority the state has over our lives is to take our lives from us or to put us away forever. The ultimate authority that a church has is to say to someone, I'm sorry, we don't believe you belong with us anymore. Well, it is way past time to stop. Before we close, just a brief word about possibly the most often misquoted passage in Scripture. Matthew 18, 19, and 20. It connects in, but... Certainly we need to see, see what it does not mean. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. You remember the three rules, three primary rules of, of, of biblical interpretation, right? Context, context, context. Verse 19 could read this in connection with the others. If two of you agree on earth about any judicial matter, it will be done for them in heaven. Once again, we see the enormous spiritual authority that God has given to the church. Jesus will be the ultimate judge, but if we do His will as He has prescribed, we can be assured of His presence and His approval. And while Scripture is rich... With promises about prayer, these verses have very little and maybe nothing to do with prayer. This is not a promise that if, you know, oh, if I pray by myself, that's good. But if I can get two or three more, that's really good. And God will have to listen then and have to, because he's promised, if, you know, if we'll come. No, that's not what he's saying. This is about church discipline. And <clears throat> so don't misunderstand. Once again, it just adds to the weight of the seriousness of this matter. Well, I want to close these cheery thoughts by wishing you the happiest of Mother's Day festivities. Actually, I will say that next week we're going to end our series on the 29th chapter, Our Place as a Church in this day and time. With admonitions from the Lord and His Word to His beloved church. Many of you uh, 
pay enough attention to these types of things to know that the title of today's message should have had a part two in it. It did. It is actually part two of last week's message, but I, I wanted us to focus. I wanted us to focus on focusing on the church in a new way, and I wanted to reflect that in the title. Um, next week's message is going to flow from this one as we think about God's instructions for all churches. It will be a lot more cheery, so come back next week. The message, even though it's written to all churches, is going to have a distinctly Grace Community Church flavor. Let's pray. This, um, this, this text, this emphasis on these two weeks came as a result of where we are in this series. Um, I, as I thought about Mother's Day and I thought, wow, is that the best? Well, I just have to say I'm, I'm certain it's God's design. I, I just, I'm convinced of that. So I want to ask you a question, and, and this is a difficult question. Look, I can promise you that if the elders moved in this direction for anyone, it would be with great fear and trepidation, and, 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 and we're never looking for an opportunity. We're not looking for a test case, believe me. But I just want to ask you in your relationship before the Lord, in, in your heart, is there something going on your, in your life? It's just major. It's major. And, and if, if any one of us found out about it, and, and, and we're not a church of spies, and we're not looking to tattle on each other, but if this process were, were put in place, would you repent if your brother or sister came to you and said, you got to stop this. You, you know better. And then if two or three, what would it take? Where would it go? Is there something in your life that you need to repent of? We don't need to know. We don't want to know. We want this circle of knowledge to be as, as small as possible. If this is between you and God, you deal with it this morning. If this is between you and another person, deal with it. Today, do not wait. Deal with it today between you and the other person. I'm talking to the one who is sinning, not the one who feels he or she has been sinned against. The admonition is there, but this, this focus is, is for the one who's sinning. What would you do if it came right down to it and the entire church said, I'm sorry. You can't live like this and be a part of our community. Would you? Repent. Just take time right now. And the rest of us, oh, pray that God will give us that same commitment to purity and holiness. Because if there were some who were wandering in our flock, who were wandering away from the Lord, we know how susceptible our hearts are. We know where our thoughts go, where our eyes go, where our feet go and we think we can play with sin and, and play with fire and not be burned. So it's a, it's a time of examination. Would you just before the Lord say, God, please forgive me. I, I, 
this is sin. I, I seriously thought about, you know, doing something up front this morning, an invitation, but, you know, the, the, the most tender hearts in here would, would, would be the ones that would come forward and then that might, this is between you and God. Just, just deal with the Lord right now. Father, we confess to you that we are sinners. And even though Jesus lives in those of us who have claimed him as our Savior and have believed that he died and have repented of our condition of sin, of our, our, of our sin against you, a holy and a righteous God, when we have repented and believed, we belong to you. And Jesus lives in us, but so does Adam. So does Eve. And we recognize that we are just as likely to go back to who we were before we knew Jesus as we are to stay where we are. And so we thank you for the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sin and doesn't allow us to be comfortable where we are. And we thank you for our brothers and sisters who care enough. And Lord, it's, it, it's the perfect place to consider these, these words of Jesus because we've never done this before and we're not looking to do it. But Lord, thank you for a structure that does not let us go the way that we want to. Just like families sometimes have to come alongside a member and say, you got to change or there are going to be consequences. Lord, what a beautiful, loving thing you have done for us in a way that you have given us. On this day, when we think about mothers and their responsibilities and their privileges, even as I saw this week, the, the best job in the world is the toughest job in the world, or I think the other way, the toughest job in the world is the best job in the world. I, I, I have to agree, even though I'm not a mother. I, I, the, the, the testimonies speak loudly. And on this day, we pray that you would help us to yield to your authority and your discipline when necessary, that we might administer discipline to our children, even to one another if it calls for it, in the most godly way imaginable. We love you, Lord, and we pray that as we walk out of this place, that we see this church, this bride that you are preparing for yourself, Jesus, through different eyes, and that we would have a deep, profound respect and appreciation for what you have decided to do, fallible and as messed up as we are. Come in our midst. We give you honor and praise. Would you stand together and let's sing together.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise